on a warm summer's evening On a train bound for nowhere I met up with a gambler We were both too tired to sleep So we took turns of staring Out the window at the darkness To boredom overtook us And he began to speak He said, son, I've made a life Out of reading people's faces And knowing what the cards were By the way they held their eyes So if you don't mind my saying I can see you're out of aces For a taste of your whiskey I'll give you some advice So I handed him my bottle And he drank down my last swallow Then he bombed a cigarette And asked me for a light And the night got deathly quiet And his face lost all expression Said if you're gonna play the game, boy You gotta learn to play it right You got to know when to hold them Know when to fold them Know when to walk away Max Harris, didn't someone tell you that the first on the panel you've got to sing along? <laughs> I told you. Well, you missed the memo, mate. Uh, give me some advance notice next time. <laughs> Just joking. Uh, on this day back in 2020, Kenny Rogers dies at the age of 81. And behind the song, songwriter Don Schultz has been struggling. He's in Nashville for a couple of years, and he writes The Gambler in 1976. He was working the graveyard shift as a computer operator during the period when he got the inspiration for a song that would change his life. No one would touch the song, Don said, but finally Bobby Baird cut the song, released it in 1978. Willie Nelson admits he passed on The Gambler when Rogers tried to pass the song along to him, but boy, what a song it is, Janet Wilson. What a song it is. Yeah, it is. It's a fantastic song. Isn't it though? It's an, it's an emblem. It's an, it's, a, it's an anthem for a lot of people, including the rather wonderful but now long gone Rod Peterson, who was the head of news and current affairs at really? TV3 when I was there. Yeah, he loved the song, The Gambler. And mm. it always reminds me of him. Something about it, Max. There's something about the song that takes us somewhere to nowhere, but... Yeah, I guess a sense of nostalgia and a yeah. sense of uh, a bit of a journey, isn't there? Um, mm. Yeah, it's, it's a nice one. Uh, you're on the panel, uh, NZ National. Lovely to have you accompanied this afternoon. Dear Wallace, boredom is a highly underrated human capability. I try to adhere to the Dunbar principle from Catch-22. Dunbar was determined to stay alive for as long as possible, so he cultivated boredom to achieve his goal, says Stephen in Nelson. Sandy says, I love watching from my window as the little birds go upside gymnastics, getting the sunflower kernels from the dying sunflowers. That's poetic. What's that related to? Um, I, I turn up the radio for that song, Wallace, uh, for the gambler. Wallace, opposites attract colourful birds and dull bird watchers. Colourful bird watchers would blow their colour cover. Wallace, church goers are anything but boring. It takes serious daring and bravery to own to being a practising Christian in these times. It's not for the faint-hearted or the boring. Uh, and I, someone says, I've been fascinated by wildlife since I was a small child. For me, bird watching is fascinating. Julie says... Steve Broinus is a bird watcher. He's not boring. I don't know if Steve is a bird watcher, Janet. Do you know, he, 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 
wrote a book about how to, how to watch a bird, but is he a bird watcher? Yes, I don't know. he did. Yeah. Yes, he did. I'm not sure that he's an, um, an authorised bird watcher. No, no. Uh, and regarding um, Sally, would you uh, like to make your pay transparent, the, uh, you know, the seek, the trade me ads? Kia ora, Wallace, the count of you on the salary issue is that any employer is taking a big risk when they hire someone. The person may be a great talker at the interview, but unproductive in the role. The reality is that once the employer understands the skills and productivity of the new recruit, once they have been on the job for a few months, it is in the employer's interests to raise their salary if they are productive to retain them and vice versa, says Michael. That's a good point, Max. Yeah, it's a fair concern. Um, But I think as Craig said earlier, this move is really about sharing information so that the right choice is made at the outset. And I think just as just as the employer um, has some information, you know, the, the person applying is entitled to know some base level of information. And I think the starting salary isn't all that unreasonable. Yeah. The panel are international. Now, a video of a group of men in Southland rallying against the government has been panned for its misogynistic views. The men had gathered in what looks like a wooden shed, woolen shed perhaps, and were recorded introducing themselves and saying why they were speaking up. A short clip of their comments was shared on Twitter by Rangi Kemara over the weekend. Here's a taste of what they said. I'm here because things are not right. I moved here from uh, Hawke's Bay and I did that specifically to be part of this revolution. Instead. I'm a fisherman, family man and a uh, southern bloke. And I think I want to Males out there know things aren't right. So I'm here to look, look after the woman. The Southland men have got to stand up. We've got to be counted. Um, most of the we go to these protest rallies are all women. If you call yourself a man, it's time to stand up. It's time to speak up. We're our, we're our men. We're our builders. We're our rugby players. We're our farmers. I want to call out all the men. So if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Our, our wives are falling and are struggling. It's time to say enough is enough, to stand up and to fight against this tyranny, this evil that has engulfed our country and our nation. Stand up as a man, reject the lies, be an example to the women around you, answer to no one but ourselves, and this corrupt government has gone rogue. We don't submit to it anymore. So in short, if you're a man, stand up. It's not the first time that the Prime Minister's performance has been criticised with an undercurrent of sexism. The nickname Cindy and Pretty Communist come to mind. To discuss, Dr Suze Wilson from Massey University recently wrote an opinion piece in the conversation around this issue. Uh, and she is with us now. Dr Wilson, kia ora. Welcome to the panel. Kia ora, Wallace. Kia ora, Janet and Max. When you hear that, what do you hear? Um, kind of voices from the medieval era, honestly, um, where, you know, women should be kept tame and under under the control of men. And, you know, the government has had to enact some difficult and controversial policy decisions. We all understand that, but there's just this really clear undercurrent of resentment that it's a woman who is leading these decisions. And a lot of people, not only men, some women too, just really object to that because the kind of ideal concept of a, of a leader is, is a masculine ideal. Are we seeing a rise in anti-woman sentiment, do you think, Dr Wilson? Uh, yes, and it's not just a matter of opinion. The National Council of Women Gender Attitudes survey shows uh, that more conservative views about the kinds of roles that women should have, including leadership roles, have been on the rise over the last five to six years. So it's it's a clear and established trend and because we are 
in a situation where a lot of people are feeling stressed, that's now coming out in more and more aggressive and violent ways. Mm. Let's uh, bring our panellists in. Janet Wilson. Um, Suze, I'm, I'm interested in this whole idea about the traditional trope of woman as evil seductress. Um, uh, and also the idea that in that, in that tape, they're talking about standing up, but they don't say what they're standing up for. So it, it's, it's almost like we've got to stand up for the right ideas, but what are those right ideas? It's misogyny, well, isn't it? Yes, I mean, what they're really doing is standing up against equality of opportunity. They're standing up against women having a chance to have our say and to influence the direction of the country. And they want us back in the kitchens. Yeah, yeah. Protecting our, we've got to protect our women, they say. Yes, it's a very patronising um, perspective. It's, it's kind of all tied up with this notion that somehow women are weak and vulnerable and that yeah. what we need is men to to protect us. Um, and what, so what the research shows us is, like, everyone's got kind of a, their own mental model of, of what a good leader looks like, and those mental models are very gendered. And that's because we grow up hearing stories about princes rescuing maidens from, from castles, right? Um, and, you know, popular culture is infused with these, these kind of hero images of, of men as leaders. And so when a woman is actually in a leadership role, and this is what we've got now with Ardern, but, you know, um, Clark and Shipley are also on record as talking about the sexism they, they suffered. It just doesn't compute for some people that here she is in a role issuing instructions, issuing directives. And, and so they can't um, accept any of those instructions and decisions as being fair or reasonable or helpful. They just rebel against them. Uh, Max Harris. Yeah, Dr Wilson, uh, thanks so much for sharing the the research. And I think you sort of answered the question I had, which was, um, do you think there's an element here of um, a sort of long overdue rebalancing of power in being painted out as kind of loss of power by by this group of men in this video? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the really sad thing, isn't it? Is that you can see that 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 men who are holding to this view are feeling like somehow they're being disadvantaged in an unfair fashion if women rise up. But you know, equality is not about some people rising at the expense of other people falling back. It's about everyone having you know the same chance to to succeed in life, to be taken seriously, to not be subjected to double standards or prejudice and discrimination. So, and again, the research is really clear. In in companies and countries where there is greater equality, people are happier, not just women, but all people are happier. So, you know, if they could just kind of not be quite so threatened when women are assertive, and making decisions, they they find actually it's better for, for all of us. No. And as a person who does research around this issue, Dr. Wilson, I mean, uh, it was uh, an opinion piece in the conversation, and it was really widely uh, shared and regarded. Um, what responses did you have to that article you wrote? Um, fairly predictable, to be honest. Um, so probably um, about ten percent just outright crazy. Um, about 60% hostile and 90% of that from men and probably about 30% supportive. Um, Good can I grief. Jump in? Hang on, hang on. Let me just, so 10% crazy, 60% yeah. hostile? 
and th- just 30% supportive? Yeah, that, I mean, that's in terms of stuff that's come directly to me by email or stuff that people are posting on my LinkedIn account. Janet. Um, Can I just jump in here? Can I just jump in here? Oh, um, Suze, finish what you're saying and then Janet wants to um, come, come in again. Suze, please. So one of the things I'm really noticed about the justification is people are saying it's because, you know, our journalists on X, Y and Z that I feel really angry about that this is happening. And my response to that is I get that you're angry, but that's no justification to resort to sexist slurs. That's no justification to resort to misogynistic behaviour. And if you are justifying that, you're actually falling prey to kind of the, the defence of domestic abusers and rapists everywhere, which is that she's asking for it. And she is not asking for it. She has made it mm. very clear that she finds this behaviour repugnant, as even anybody mm. would. Janice? Um, the, the reaction you've had, Dr Wilson from this article suggests to me that this, you said that the, the gender attitude survey showed traditional views on leadership and gender are, are on the rise, but it shows mm-hmm. me that it's actually far deeper than what we would have anticipated. Yes. Um, I mean, I think any woman who's held a leadership role has, you know, we know that we're always, if you like, walking a tightrope, Okay. If we're too assertive, we get told that we're bossy and that we're, in other words, starting with B, right, which I probably shouldn't say on national radio. And on the other hand, if we're nice and engage in traditional feminine behaviours of being supportive and caring and that sort of thing, we don't get taken seriously as a leader. So we're always walking a tightrope, and there's a big body of research around that. It's called the double bind. Um, And Adun, you know, like every other woman prime minister we've had, is is trying to walk that tightrope very carefully. But by emphasising care, care for people, which is, you know, the obviously logical thing to do in a pandemic where people's lives are at risk, she is not taken seriously. She's seen as a weak leader. And then when she is assertive and firm around policies that, again, are intended to try to keep people safe, she gets, you know, harangued for being... Um, inflexible, cold, uncaring, and, you know, various other words that people are directing at her. So, you know, <laughs> like most women in leadership, she's damned if she does and damned if she doesn't. It's it's a mm. very difficult situation, and we need to, people need to understand why that's happening, and it's because of these, you know, unconscious beliefs that, that come into play, and so any time a woman is in a leadership role, people are scrutinising her, their not judging her on the same standards that they would judge a male leader. Thank you for being with us, uh, Dr. Wilson. That is Suze Wilson there from Mass University who wrote an opinion piece on the issue. Uh, in the conversation, uh, quite a big response to this. Uh, Miro says, uh, Wallace, in regarding, regards women leadership, look at what happened to Julia Gillard uh, in uh, Australia. It's 4.47. You're on the panel, RNZ National. Now, following on from the issue with mobility car parks last week, we got quite a response on that. An interesting item from Josephine Franks and stuff on the issue that people with disabilities have with state housing. And it profiled one Pearl Schomburg who can't access much of her house because modifications haven't been made for her disability. Much of her kitchen, useless to her. She can only reach things if they're at the front of the cupboard and not too low. 
We've discussed this issue before on the panel. New builds in general having corridors too small, rooms that you don't have access to as the doorways are too narrow for a wheelchair, so on. To discuss is lawyer, researcher and disability rights advocate, Dr. Huhana Hickey. Hickey. Kia ora, welcome to the show. Kia ora, thank you. And she's absolutely spot on. That's my house as well is, while we're talking. Is it? So you are going through this. You've been through this. Yes. Oh, yes, I'm going through it. My disability has progressed to the point that I now need caregivers when I'm showering and we can't all fit. It's such a tiny bathroom and it's not to stand. And I discovered last year that it's actually not a legal one. The OT had a look at it and was quite horrified. So we're on the transfer list and they're actually in the middle now of trying to find a place because none of the new builds are meeting the needs of people with quite strong uh, physical disability needs. Um, and there's a sizable population of us and we've been living in very inadequate housing from day one. Uh, what, what, a lot of it. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah, sorry Dr. What really stunned me was, you know, we can talk about the uh, mobility car parks, but this is your home. Mm. And this is actually not even being able to fit a wheelchair uh, in, into some of the blooming rooms. Yep, I can't go into all the rooms. Um, the problem you've got is the whole way the structure's set up. And I, I was only on Housing New Zealand for two years as a director. I didn't get on the kind order, but we were starting to make some headway in getting them to understand the very need of having open plan housing for people in wheelchairs because that fits better. But a lot of the modifications, if you're not ACC, you then don't get the gold standard, basically, as I've seen with some of my friends, where they've got the bigger rooms and the wider doors and it really fits their needs well. A lot of us on MOH, um, DHB funding, uh, the modifications are, are not well funded. You only get one in your whole lifetime, so if you move, too bad. And you oh. cannot um, get it all done. So we can't, they don't consider it to be as important for us to work in the kitchen. My dad was a chef. I love food. I love cooking it. Um, I can't do it. We, they don't think that we need to be parents of our children in bedrooms that the doors are too narrow in. So, yes, that's a standard state house as it stands right now. The only ones that are gold standard, pretty much the ones that were modified under AUCC funding. Gosh, Max. Uh, Dr Hickey, it's, it's great that you're on and nice to speak to you again. Um, you've you've you lived this and you've, you've been in a position of political leadership. And what I don't understand is, you know, we know that universal design is the gold standard for making mm. these houses accessible. And yet um, Kainga Order has a 15% target for public housing having universal design. Like, why is it that low? And given that government can control some of the terms of public housing, why isn't that 100%? Well, you you tell me, because when we did the consultations while I was there, it was very clear from the community that we want to be able to go into state housing when and where we live. And that means we shouldn't have to be trapped in houses outside our areas where we want to work. And Auckland's large. When I worked on the North Shore, I had to travel, and it would take two hours sometimes to get home or even to get to work. So I wasted four hours a day because I couldn't get housing on the shore. I had to stay in South Auckland. And that's the problem. There is no there's no standard. There's been no audit of accessible housing. There's been no review of it to that level. And we've now finally got an inquiry with HRC, which has opened the door, and it's a festering wound underneath. What we have to do is plug that wound, clean it, and get it right. 
So we'll keep consulting, but credit where credit's due. Just recently, I've been dealing with a homeless tetraplegic man in the Waikato, and housing have stepped up, and they're actually um, looking at a house, and they're finally getting on board, but he's been homeless for 13 years. So it's a long time. We've got people with children that are disabled living in motels for months on end. And what's grating is some people, when they go to the MP, get houses straight away. But we're watching them get these houses and we can't get anything. I don't know why it's set at 15%. They decided that, not me. I oppose that and I keep opposing that. In my view, state housing, government housing should all be 100% life mark standard, ready to be modified if needed. And that should be on all bills. But how much, how, much, how much extra would that cost? Um, surely 15% target is, I mean, it's a fair target, isn't it? Well, it's not enough. We have 1.5 million disabled in Aotearoa, and not all are physical, no, but there's a range of needs, and there's no actual um, working out what those needs are. How can it uh, be cost-effective? If you do it at the time of the build, it works out cheaper than retrofitting after. So all these old houses like the one I'm in, which is over 50 years old, it's too expensive to try and modify them. It is better to do it so that they're ready for easy modifications within, um, like if it's needed at any time. And that's not what's happening. I was offered a brand new house, two-storied home, in a box. And it was terrible. My service dog had no ground. There was nowhere to go. And I couldn't go upstairs as the lead tenant to make sure that the property is safe under my care. Oh. That's not good enough. What's <laughs> it's 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 incredible. Listen to this, isn't it, Jenna Wilson? It's kind of an un, unheard issue. You go into a new house, you can't use your second floor. What do you make of this? No, well, you can't even oh. use the bedroom. It doesn't Gosh. fit everything. Uh, yeah, Dara, um, Dara says universal design should be the starting point for our building code. Life mark rating should be included with every new property. People should be able to age in place because retrofitting is uh, more expensive. Is Dara's uh, point? Um, Janet. Dr. Hickey, I'm really interested in this this lottery, it appears, that if you're with ACC, you, you get all these things. And it, if you go through the DHB in the, in the Ministry of Health system and go down to Kayanga Ora, um, you're, um, you have a completely different system. Why do you think mm. Kayanga Ora is, is being so remiss in this regard for so long? Well, well, they've never been in charge of how the modifications go or who funds it. My idea was that we should be pulling all the modification money that goes into housing and that that be done from one pool of funding rather than, right. oh, you're ACC, so you get this, MOH, you get this. We should have it pulled in a certain amount each year because even people trying to buy a home, you get a stroke and you suddenly know you've got to either move or you have to buy Um, And they can't get the modifications at a time when someone comes out of hospital because of all the paperwork. So we actually need a better response. Good grief. um, It's the tip of the iceberg. This this must be unbelievably frustrating. Yes, it is. I've gone grey before my time. I might be 60, but I look 85. So there you go. It is frustrating. It's led to suicidal tendencies and some of my clients that I've had to advocate for and trying to get them housing and keep them their mental well-being going. Um, people with, um, we've, I mean, we were helping people out with food baskets at Christmas and we came across a farmer with two disabled babies and they had nothing in there. It's a state house. 
but it was terrible to get in and out steps. So she has to carry her son, who's growing in his wheelchair, in and out every day. There's stories, and it's all under the surface. People don't go to the media. They get embarrassed, or they feel that people will judge them. So they won't talk about it. Well, we're, happy, we're happy to have the issue on the panel. We'll, we'll come back to it. Uh, Dr. Huanet, awesome. uh, kia ora. Thank you for that. What do you make of that, Max? I mean, honestly, you move into a new house, can't use the second floor, can't use the kitchen, or there's a couple of bedrooms you can't go into. Yeah, and you raised the, the question about cost, which some people might ask about, but surely this is just the price of living in an accessible society for anyone that wants to use public housing. Um, who may become disabled? And there are 1.5 million people disabled, as Dr Hickey said, um, should have an accessible house. Finally, on the panel, we've all seen a contestant on a TV game show fail to get an obvious answer. It's yell at your TV kind of stuff. Most recently, a Wheel of Fortune contestant in the US has been the subject of mirth online for failing to solve what many had thought was a fairly well-known phrase. Here's a montage of one of the contestants trying to get the word to complete the phrase. I'll solve. Okay. Another feather in your hat. Another feather in your lap. No. I will solve. Okay. Another feather in your map. Well, let's see if the panel can get it. Um, Janet Wilson, another feather in your... Cat. Another feather in your cap <laughs> is the same. I mean, I know you've written a book, Max. We shouldn't we, be too we, judgmental we, here no, again, though. No, no, know? we're not being judgmental. We're not being judgmental. It's just that uh, there are there are uh, some might have thought that would have been easier than uh, uh, other phrases, Max. I don't know about you. Oh, I always get these sayings wrong, and yeah, I've got the nervousness of being on on TV. <laughs> um, I don't, I don't blame her. No, I don't either. Um, I quite like another feather in your hat, actually. That yes. could have actually passed master, couldn't it? Have you been on a game show? Either you, have, have you had a, had a dream of being on um, the Generation Game, Janet or Max? <laughs> I remember no. that. I watched Wheel of Fortune as a kid, but no, never been on a game show. Never, no. never really dreamed of it. No. And I want to play the game with you. You've been wonderful, both of you. Max Harris and Jenna Olsen. Kia thanks for your time. I'm Wallace Chapman. See you tomorrow, Tuesday, 3.45. Till then, bye.